Thank you, Marta. As always, the poems are beautiful. Let's bow our heads for an opening prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your grace. Thank you for the mercy and the free gift of salvation. We receive it by faith. And we can express our faith when we worship you. Help us to learn today how to worship. What does it really mean to worship? Please send your spirit so he would guide our minds and thoughts and lead us to an understanding of the true nature of worship. And we want to thank you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as I mentioned, I, uh, I had an impression in my heart that we should talk about worship. And as I was thinking of worship, I finally ended up with a three-part series about worship. Number one is today, uh, True Worship, Part One. Why is that so important in our days that we know how to worship? Or what is the true form of worship? Well, we need to go to the very last book of the Bible and see a prophetic picture of our time and a little bit about our future. Because I believe that the greatest issue in the future is going to be about worship. And we need to see the difference between the true and the false form of worship. So let's go to Revelation chapter 13 first, and then chapter 14 as well. So please open your Bibles with me at Revelation chapter 13, just to see the prophetic picture of our days. This is Revelation chapter 13. I'm reading the second half of verse 3, then verse 4, then we move on to verse 8. It says, this is Revelation 13, verse 3, the second sentence in that verse. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. And then verse 4, so they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Then verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Then verses 13 and 14, same chapter. This is about another beast. First is coming out of the sea, second is out of the land. And verses 13 and 14 say, 
he performs, meaning the second beast, great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of man. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. And then let's move to verse 15. I, I need to add verse 15. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So what is this? This is not a true form of worship because who is behind this whole movement? Well, and verse 4 is the key Bible verse. It says, so they, meaning all the world, worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And who is the dragon? Well, we know if you turn the page back to chapter 12, verse 9 says, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth, and his angel, angels were cast out with him. So this is something we need to see in the background. Whenever we talk about worship, there is a being in the universe, he is confined to this system, to this globe, his name is Satan, which means the enemy. He is the enemy and he is doing everything to divert humans from worshiping God because he wants to be worshipped. And of course we know from history that the first beast represents symbolically the papacy. Second beast represents, unfortunately, the United States. And uh, regarding the second beast, the Bible says that he performs great signs so that he even makes fire coming down from heaven on the earth in the sight of man. And the purpose is to deceive. This is why the second beast is called the false prophet. Because what he is performing, um, certain types of signs or wonders, they have one purpose, to deceive. And it seems that in the future there will be a further purpose. Because it says that he was telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast. And he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. 
So this is an enforced form of worship. Can we force worship? Can we ever force worship? Well, it doesn't really matter who is behind the enforcement of worship. That is, that power is definitely not from God. Because that's a demonic power. He wants, Satan wants to be worshipped. And it looks that at the end of all things, there will be something, a worldwide deception. How can we avoid this deception? Of course, my purpose is not to talk about the false worship. We would rather focus on the true worship in order to be safe and then see the difference between true and false worship. What do we know about the true worship, a true form of worship? Well, in Revelation chapter 14, you find the true form of worship. So these two types of worships are side by side. Revelation 14, I'm reading this well-known passage, uh, 14 and then verses 6 to 13. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And, that's the key term, and then worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead and on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and I have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. This is not going to be a sermon on the three angels' messages. But I wanted to see uh, how this whole picture fits together in the book of Revelation. You know, these are the center pieces or chapters of Revelation. Chapter 12, 13, and 14. And it looks to me 
that the main issue at the end of human history is the true form of worship. So what is the true form of worship? When we worship God as creator of everything. Any other kind of worship form is false. And our message, as we all know, is based on Revelation chapter 14. We call it the three angels' messages. And the first angel is calling our attention to the true form of worship. And I'd like to read that part again. This is the second half of verse 7. It says, And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. This is part of the fourth commandment. If you go to the book of Exodus, chapter 20, and you would, verse, you would read verse 11, this is the part which is alluded to, is not quoted. It's interesting that in the book of Revelation you don't find any quotation. There are allusions or references to certain parts of the Bible. And there are people, there are scholars who believe that in the book of Revelation you find over 2,000 references to every book of the Bible. All books of the Bible are included in that sense in the book of Revelation. How do we know that we need to worship God as creator? Who is the man or was the man who wrote down the creation story? Moses. And without Moses, we could not really imagine how this whole story began. And so Moses would help us in the first place through his own experience what true, real worship is. So I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Exodus. Exodus chapter 3. Because this man Moses had a very interesting experience. And this is Exodus chapter 3. And then I'm reading the first, uh, first five verses. Exodus, Exodus 3 and then verses 1 through 5. We know from the Bible that Moses was supposed to be the next Pharaoh. And as far as we understand, he was about 40 years old. He learned all the knowledge of Egypt. The Bible says all the wisdom of Egypt. He had 40 years to learn that. Think about that, 40 years. I don't know how the kids are thinking of schooling. Try to imagine yourselves going to school for 40 years. <laughs> that would be something, you know, unimaginable. This is it's just impossible. Uh, there are certain types of uh, religious groups that educate their um, 
leaders, and uh, there are certain monks, they study for decades, at least one decade or more, like the Jesuits. They have to learn for at least 10 years or more. But Moses had 40 years. All the wisdom and the knowledge of Egypt he had to be a master of. But but then something went wrong. He could not control himself. And sometimes we don't think about Moses, a person who could not control himself. (coughs) So what we understand from this whole story is that he was about 40 years old, then he did something unexpectedly. I can, I can imagine that he was even surprised at his own actions and the way how the news spread afterwards. But he had to leave the country. Then in his life, it came another 40 years. So he had 40 years to learn and he had 40 years to forget. And I learned something. So we will go to Exodus chapter 3 now. Excuse me for drinking, but I... Sometimes I <clears throat> I feel that the, the air is too dry here. I don't know how you feel about that. So let's go to Exodus chapter 3 and just read a few few verses of this story. It's a well-known story. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, which is Mount Sinai, another named for the same mountain. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place where you stand is holy ground. So what is this? What did he have to learn? Well, he knew everything about the gods of Egypt. He knew the language. He knew the history. He knew the culture. He knew religious practices. He knew all the wisdom, including demonic 
manipulations and influences for 40 years. Then he killed an Egyptian. He had to leave. And now this proud man who was supposed to be the next pharaoh is doing something completely different. He is tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. I think this was something of an existential type of change. And so this man had to understand something. Because Moses was a very bright mind person. And the Bible says that Moses was more humble than anyone else. And Moses was the only one who had the privilege of talking to God face to face. Although he did not see the face of God. But we learned something. I, I used two of Ellen White's books to have a, an insight. What was really going on in the life of Moses. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 251. It says that in the solemn grandeur of the everlasting hills, he beheld the majesty of the Most High and in contrast realized how powerless and insignificant were the gods of Egypt. Everywhere the Creator's name was written. Moses seemed to stand in his presence and to be overshadowed by his power. Here his pride and self-sufficiency were swept away. In the stern simplicity of his wilderness life, the result of the ease and luxury of Egypt disappeared. Moses became patient, reverent, and humble. Very meek. This is a quotation from Numbers 12, verse 3. Very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth, yet strong in faith in the mighty God of Jacob. So what a change that took place in his life, in his mind, his way of thinking. So he beheld the majesty of the Most High. And he understand from nature that God is the creator. And Ellen White adds something interesting. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote the book of Genesis. And it happened right there. While he was tending the sheep. He wrote the book of Genesis. The long years spent amid the desert solitudes were rich in blessing not alone to Moses and his people, but to the world 
in all succeeding ages. So when he was moved from the luxury of Egypt and from all the false beliefs of the Egyptians, he saw in nature the all-powerful God. And God blessed him with visions and he was able to write down the story of Genesis, which means origin. So that's why we have the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. Because this man who was proud, the Bible says, I mean, Ellen White says proud. He was proud and self-sufficient, but his pride and self-sufficiency were swept away. And whenever we come to a true realization of worship, then our pride and self-sufficiency should be swept away. Because the purpose of worship is not to make us proud, but to make us humble. If we feel we are proud... They are proud of ourselves after a service. Then I don't know, maybe the preacher was not prepared well for the sermon. But we should feel humble because we come to the presence of the Almighty. And then God was telling this man that you should even take off your shoes or sandals. Because the place where you stand is a holy ground. Do you believe that this is a holy ground when we worship God in this place? Not the walls, not the roof, not the pews, not the carpet, not even the preacher makes it holy. But whenever we sense that the creator, the all-powerful God is present, then we would say, this is the place where we need to bow down. And that's where Moses finally bowed down. He covered his, his head because he could not look into the fire. And God was in that fire. And so I was thinking, what really happened to Moses? There was another quotation from Desire of Ages, page 23. It says, the burning bush in which Christ, please remember this, Christ appeared to Moses, revealed God. The symbol chosen for the representation of the deity was a lowly shrub, that seemingly had no attractions. This enshrined the infinite. The all-merciful God shrouded his glory in a most humble type that Moses could look upon and live. So in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, God communicated with Israel, revealing to man his will, 
and imparting to them his grace. God's glory was subdued and his majesty wailed that the weak vision of finite man might behold it. Isn't it beautiful? So in a burning bush, Christ appeared to Moses. Of course, the Bible says that it was the angel of the Lord. But if you go to verse 4, this is Exodus 3, verse 4, there is a, is a hint here. <coughs> it's so, it says, so when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the fire. So was, was the angel of the Lord, was the Lord himself. My Andrew's study Bible says that it was the pre-incarnate Christ. Sent from God as an angel or a messenger of the Lord. And then he said, Moses, Moses, the, the God... The Lord, the God, called to him. And this calling, calling his name, practically meant that I know you. Have you ever been in a trouble remembering somebody's name? I'm trying to train myself. And remember all the names. Sometimes I do, sometimes I forget names. But uh, you can rest assured that God would never forget your name. Which means that he knows everything about you. And Moses at the burning bush had to understand that this God, who is talking to me from this bush, from the flames, he knows me. And he loves me. And Ellen White is saying that because of the all-merciful nature of God, his glory was veiled. But at the same time, he revealed something of himself that the, the burning fire would not consume that, that shrub, but would make the place holy. And so he had to take off his sandals. What does it mean to take off the sandals? There was another man in the Bible some decades after. His name was Joshua. And Joshua had an interesting experience with the Lord. Please come with me to his book. Joshua, the book of Joshua, and then chapter 5, and I'm reading from verse 13 to verse 15. This is a very similar experience to what Moses went through and what he understood about God. But Joshua followed Moses in, in, in the leadership. It says, and it came to pass, this is Joshua 5.13, came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho 
that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the, to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Very, very similar experience. Different situation, of course, because there was a war going on. They were about to besiege this fortified city, Jericho. And then it's amazing that the Lord appeared to Joshua, telling him that I am the commander of the host. Of of the Lord. So I am not against you. I am not your enemy. But I am not your soldier either. This is a very interesting term. Commander of the army of the Lord. Or commander of the Lord's army in verse 15. Take your Sandal of your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And I was wondering why did they have to take off the shoes or the sandals? Well, we know something from uh, from the book of Moses, especially if you go to. Uh, Go to Exodus uh, 20 and verse 21. That those who were around the mountain, Mount Sinai, and uh, the people saw the thunderings, the lightning, the smoke and everything. God was standing and then revealing the Ten Commandments. They had to depart They were kind of afraid. They don't want to come close to the the mountain because they were afraid that they would die. But Moses was invited to come closer to the cloud. And of course, the question is, how can you express your humility and your reverence? Whenever we have worship, we need to believe that God is present. He is not sending his angel, the commander of the army of the Lord, but his spirit is here. And we need to do everything in order to avoid being disturbed. The service, 
or, or become a source of disturbance. Because then we lose something. We lose the sense of the presence of the Lord. And I'd like to close by reading something from the book of Moses. Um, let's go to uh, Exodus and then chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. After revealing the Ten Commandments, and all the people of Israel witnessed to that, something interesting happened. I'm reading from verses 18 to 21. This is Exodus 20, and in verses 18 to 21. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, You speak with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Don't, do not fear, for God has come to test you. And that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off. But Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. God said to Moses before the take of your sandals. And it was a symbolic, symbolic expression of humility. We know that in those days, slaves did not wear sandals. They walked barefoot. And there's an interesting element in a well-known story in the New Testament. This is Luke 15. You know the story of the prodigal son. Prodigal son. He lost everything. But he did not lose his mind. He came to his senses. And he decided, I, I should go back to my father because he is a good man. But he realized something that he was not worthy to be called his son again. So he was ready to confess his sins and then saying to his father, uh, just make me like a servant in your, in your house. And what happened to this man? Well, the father decided that my son, I can imagine he was barefoot. No sandals, nothing. Just uh, very dirty clothing. But he knew in his heart that his father is, uh, he, he still loves him. And then the father said, bring something to this boy. And then he got a new robe. He got ring on his finger and he got sandals. 
which means to me that this man was re- in 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 instituted if i'm correct in his position as a son of of his father and he had to learn something that this is the grace of god and the grace and the mercy of my father that uh, i am wearing sandals again but symbolically speaking in the presence of god we are supposed to take off our sandals. I'm not saying we need to take off our shoes when we enter this place. This is a symbolic. For us, it's symbolic. And uh, I was really curious, what does it really mean to... Uh, and why, why do they have to do this? And so I found something um, in... Uh, in Leviticus, when the Bible is saying that the priests or the Levites had a, a laver or a, or a basin before uh, or between the altar, the sacrificial altar, and the temple, and they had to wash their their hands and their feet before entering the temple. Because their understanding was that maybe something is stuck to uh, those sandals. It's better to take off the sandals and then go barefoot. But wash your feet. That was the purpose. But in this case, as Moses had to learn his lesson, he also had to learn something that God is giving him more and then more of his blessings but he had to draw near to God. And this is my question for today. Are you ready to draw near to God? Are, are you ready to take, in symbolic way, to take off your sandals when you are in the presence of God? And then not to stand far off or afar off, but drew near where God is. Well, that's the purpose of worship. And Moses really had to understand that beyond all the knowledge of Egypt, beyond all the worship of different gods, the real one is the creator. And he is to be worshipped with a humble heart. And so Moses became the most humble person on this this earth. And that's my prayer this morning, that whenever we think about Moses in the burning bush and thinking of the sandals, we think about an all-powerful God. And whenever we have worship, we step in his presence, or rather, he steps in. And he makes this place holy. May the God of heaven, who created everything, would bless you and bless me and give us this experience every Sabbath. Amen.